All right. Well, this is our final week in the book of Colossians, and then we'll uh, here in a few weeks get into the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And I want you to be on the lookout in the next two weeks in your email for the study guide to the sermon series on Revelation 1 to 3. I would love for you to look at that, engage with it in your family, and there's various small groups that are going to be engaging with it as well as we begin a new series on Palm Sunday on really church health through the lenses of the churches in Revelation. But we've been talking for several weeks about the new life in Christ, which contrasts with the old world ways of religion, self-made, self-sufficient religion. And we've been we're talking about things like mortification, putting off our old clothes, putting to death the old operating systems. And vivification, putting on our new clothes according to the new ways of life in Christ. And then we talked about relationships in the new life. How does the gospel inform our family life, our work, our relationships? And then we talked about how it informs our witness. And as we close out the book this morning, we come to see one of these kinds of passages that it's easy just to skip over, just to quickly gloss over. Paul is just kind of greeting people that we don't know. He's giving instructions about people we don't know and scarcely hear about in the New Testament. So we could be tempted to think that this section is unimportant. And yet, when we dig in a bit, these are, there are some beautiful lessons to be learned here about Paul's partners in the gospel according to this new way of living. And so that's where we'll go this morning. And young worshipers, I want you to to do some tallying for me today in your children's bulletin, can you count for me how many partners does Paul mention in this passage? How many people does he name? And so we'll read Colossians 4, beginning in verse 7. Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a great comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see also that you read the letter from Laodicea and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. All flesh is like grass. And it's glory like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but these words of our God will stand forever. Let's pray.
Almighty God, through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, you revealed the way of eternal life to every nation. Pour out this gift anew that by the preaching of the gospel, your salvation may reach to the ends of the earth through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And you can be seated. Over a decade ago, when I entered into vocational ministry for the first time, I used to think that there was a, a checklist to build up a ministry resume that sounded something like this. You develop an online presence, you get published on all the blogs, maybe even write a book, you get your podcast out there, and then you come to sit on a couple of important boards for Christian ministries and it sounds funny, you may think I'm exaggerating about that, but I'm not. There was a brief time when that was my plan, but as it turns out, the Lord was extremely gracious to me to give me a couple of mentors in the faith who demonstrated some radical and ordinary faithfulness that flew in the face of my ambition. I remember a time when it clicked for me. I was sitting at a, a Starbucks in Lakeland, Florida with a student, and we had our Bibles open, and we were just going through Romans, just reading it together, just talking about it. And he was super engaged, reading the Bible, asking questions, and I was just sharing him, sharing with him what I knew, what I gleaned from my own study, and it hit me, this right here is ministry. This is what it is. And the reason it hit me that way was because that's exactly what my mentor, Pastor Dave, was doing with me. Almost every day when I'd come into work, he would just talk with me about the Bible and how it informed his life on the ground that very day. And then there was our lead pastor who I mentioned to you last week, who not only has faithfully preached the word week in and week out for 40 years, but who also looked at the opportunities he's had, even with his hobbies, especially, as I mentioned, in golf, to walk in ordinary witness for the sake of Christ. So it hit me like a ton of bricks on that day, for whatever reason, with that particular kid sitting at Starbucks as we sat there with Bibles open, talking about life and scripture, this is ministry. But it's so ordinary and it's so beautiful that in the new life, leaders and co-laborers are shaped by the gospel and recognized for their faithfulness rather than their renown. It's a freeing reality for pastors, for leaders, and for all Christians because we are all co-laborers in the gospel. And the measure of a gospel partner, a co-laborer, a worker in Christ's harvest has nothing to do with whether you're up to date on the blogs and whether you're part of the movement with the biggest crowd or whether you have some extraordinary radical story, but rather it has everything to do with the radical story of the gospel, of Christ's radical love for us, his extraordinary journey from his seat in heaven to come and rescue us and to raise us to new life in him. And because of this, we are free to be faithfully ordinary. So I want to dig in on a few characters who show up here at the end of this letter to the Colossians. Right off the bat, we have... Tychicus. He is apparently, by the way, say that five times fast, kids. Tychicus. Yeah, say that on the way home. 
he is apparently a part of the cohort who delivers this letter to the Colossians because he's going to pass along news about Paul's condition in prison. And look how Paul describes him. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. Now, Tychicus is mentioned several times in the New Testament. He traveled with Paul on his third missionary journey. And on this journey, he may have even been commissioned by the churches in Asia Minor to take the collection that they, they, they brought together and carry it to the uh, church in Jerusalem. And now that Paul is in prison in Rome, he trusts Tychicus, who has come to him, to return back to Asia Minor to carry this letter and to strengthen the churches. That's, by the way, really all that we know about him. He, he was apparently a trustworthy servant and a friend to Paul. And then there's Aristarchus, who is imprisoned there with Paul. Who is he? Well, again, he's just a traveling companion, a fellow laborer in the gospel. He gets tangled up in the persecution at Ephesus when riot breaks out in Acts 19, and he follows Paul after that, and now he somehow ends up here in prison with him in Rome. That's really all we know. But it gets even better. There's this man. His, he, his name is Jesus. He's called Justice that's all we know about him. He's otherwise unknown in the New Testament. You know what Paul says about him? He's a fellow worker and he's been a comfort to me. Now you're likely starting to see the point. Who were these men? These and countless other men and women barely mentioned in the New Testament, but significant in the life of the early church because of their ordinary faithfulness. Now, Michael Horton, in his book, Ordinary, tells the story of a young mother who was reflecting on her time as a missionary in Africa. In her early 20s, she followed the Lord's call to go and live in a remote village and minister to an obscure people, really a move which many of her family and friends thought to be quite radical. And she relished the radical nature of that call. She took pride that many of her friends that she grew up with were still just stuck in the States, working boring, ordinary jobs. But then when she came back home to the States and she got married and she began having children, she, she began to reflect on the ordinary nature of her calling as a mom. And here's what she said about it. She said, it takes so much more courage for me to wake up every day and change diapers, feed my kids, and love my husband in the everydayness of life than it did to wake up under the stars in Africa. Because what she feared most was obscurity and boredom and ordinariness. But she came to realize that her new calling as a mother required just as much faithfulness, if not more, than her calling as a missionary in Africa. Like Tychicus, who seems to have been trustworthy in whatever Paul called on him to do, big or small. I've got to tell you this, even though this brother won't want me to call him out, but uh, Paul does it, so I guess I can too. When I think of this kind of faithfulness, I think about a brother like Parker Clemens, who just about from the very moment I came here has supported and encouraged and helped me in countless ways in every ministry role I've had at this church. Always skillfully, always in a trustworthy way. I tell people all the time, if I was going to plant a church, Parker would be the first person I would ask to come along because he's just a faithful brother. 
Or I think about my wife who not only has to put up with me and all that entails, but who loves our children, who loves me well, who faithfully and ordinarily orders our household in ways I probably don't even see. Or I think about the home group leaders among us who have been at it for a a decade or two now, just caring for people in their groups, opening their homes, and so much more. All of these without asking for recognition, without coveting fame or notice, just loving Christ and loving his church. Because the reality is faithful ministry, faithfulness in the gospel doesn't usually take some extraordinary act of courage, but instead a thousand more ordinary acts of courage every day, empowered by the Holy Spirit and by Christ's radical courage for us on the cross. It takes ordinary faithfulness, and it also calls for us to be sacrificially hospitable. And here I want to focus on two more people that Paul mentions. Uh, Look first at verse 15. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. So you might be aware that in the first century there were not really church buildings. In fact, churches owning their own property wasn't really a thing until about the third or fourth century. So we're at least in good historical company. The early church was hosted in homes. Imagine that, all of New St. Peter's showing up at your front door on a Sunday morning. But there was this woman in Asia Minor called Nympha, and all we know about her is that she hosted a church in her home. Not unlike Lydia in Philippi or John Mark's mother in Jerusalem, these women were more than just housekeepers, okay? The, the implication is that Nympha, like Lydia in Acts 16, they were significant partners in the gospel for Paul, supporters of his ministry, probably even non-ordained leaders in the church, Okay, so what did it cost these people to open their homes for the meeting place of the church? Well, here's something radical. It cost them their homes every week. But it also cost them their very selves, preparing their homes, serving the church, offering what they could to the Lord. And in Lydia's case, certainly, and also probably in Nympha's, these people were, uh, they were wealthy. They had the larger gathering spaces for the church, and so... They would even see their very riches in property as part and parcel of their offering unto the Lord for the upbuilding of his church. Now, a few weeks ago, the Kunkels, Thomas and Sandra and their son Calvin, were here visiting with us from Guadalajara, Mexico. They're missionaries sent out and supported by this church. And the Kunkels have, over the past few years, planted a new church in Guadalajara that meets in their home every single Sunday. They open up their home from early afternoon until way late into the night. And it's so packed that they have to open the doors and spill out into the backyard. And their hospitality is such that people stay late into the night for fellowship. And man, I just have to tell you as a pastor, that is stunning to me. It's almost offensive. Like for me, we love having you guys over, but all of you on a Sunday morning and staying late into the night, that's... That's radical. I feel like, you know, my house is my safe space. It's my, my respite and all that. But there's Thomas and Sandra just every single Sunday opening their home to the church, using what the Lord has given them sacrificially. In just a few weeks, we're going to be visited by some other 
New St. Peter's supported missionaries, Luke and Soka Smith and their two children, and we're actively looking for a home for them to stay in for two weeks while they're here in Dallas. And here's the thing, I know that, I know that it's a burden, I know it's difficult to host and to open up and to, to organize your life around these things, but let me give you some context for what Luke and Soka have been called into in Cambodia. Luke went to the field in about 2009, just basically dropped into Cambodia, seeking to minister there. So he goes to this little village outside Phnom Penh, and just about every breathing adult in the village rejects his preaching of the gospel. So you know what he does? He starts a youth group. He starts evangelizing kids, and now, 15 years later, these kids are the leaders of a church plant in the village where Luke has lived and labored these many years in some obscure Cambodian farming village miles from modern civilization. What a beautiful expression of dying to yourself for the name of Christ. And if you have the space to, to host Luke and Soka and their two kids for a couple weeks, please let me know and, and I'll get you connected. You can also talk to Stephen. But what do you do if you don't have a home that you can open? We don't all have a home that we can open like that. Well, let's look at another character in the story. Look at verses 12 and 13. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, mature, I'm sorry, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for all those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Epaphras was the church planter in Colossae, and he's now with Paul in Rome. Maybe he's bringing him news of the church. But notice how Paul talks about him. This man has poured himself out for the church, always struggling in prayer for the church, giving himself, laboring faithfully, using whatever the Lord has given him for the sake of his kingdom. You see, hospitality is not about having a big house. And that's a pretty countercultural idea here in Dallas. Christian hospitality is not about entertaining. It's about giving yourself. It's about opening yourself to another, about making room for the outsider and the stranger and leveraging what you've been given for the sake of Christ and his kingdom and inviting others to experience his gifts to you and through you. And Paul's partners in the gospel are sacrificially hospitable. But friends, let's not miss perhaps the most important category of partners that Paul includes here. The radically reconciled. So two more characters to unpack. Look back at verse 9. Along with Tychicus comes Onesimus. Now, if you've been in the church and you've heard the kind of New Testament story and some of the characters, you've probably heard this name because he's the subject of this little letter at the back of the New Testament called Philemon. Onesimus is an escaped slave, and he escaped and he was converted under Paul's ministry and sent back by Paul to his master in Colossae to be received by a Christian brother. You can go and read Paul's letter to Philemon, who is a member of this church here in Colossae, and to whom Paul makes a passionate appeal to be reconciled as Christian brothers with his escaped bond servant. Now, if you weren't here a couple weeks ago and you're, 
struggling with that category of slave, bondservant, I commend to you Noah's sermon from, I think it was two weeks ago. I don't have time to unpack all of that here, and he did it beautifully. But the point here is that Paul isn't just sending Onesimus back. He's entrusting him with a message. He's delivering this letter. He's going to go and strengthen the church there. He is useful to Paul in ministry, which actually is appropriate because his name literally means useful. But in order to be useful, Paul is assuming a radical kind of reconciliation for this runaway bondservant with his master. And this makes sense, doesn't it? Because part of this new life is that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. We've talked about that, that the social relationships in the old order have no bearing on one's usefulness or place in the kingdom of God. But here's one that's even more radical. Look back at verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. All right, so you may have heard Mark's name. He's actually the author of the second gospel, the gospel of Mark, a major figure in New Testament history. But what's his story? Well, Mark is a kid from Jerusalem who gets swept up into the mission on Paul's first journey, accompanies Paul and Barnabas to Antioch, where he assists them in preaching the gospel. Maybe he's the, at that time, the young up-and-comer in the ministry world of the first century. But all of a sudden, when the mission gets real and Paul and Barnabas set sail for more remote shores, Mark abandons the mission. He just takes off. Maybe for fear, maybe for want of home or comfort, we don't know, but he just leaves. And then when it's time to hit the road again, Barnabas wants to take Mark along, but Paul refuses, right? This is the famous, if you read about it in the book of Acts, the rift between Paul and Barnabas overtaking John Mark along. And Paul doesn't want to because Mark deserted him, right? So Paul and Barnabas split, and frankly, the New Testament's not really... Um, concerned to, to help us figure out who was right in that situation. The point is, there was relational breach between Paul and Mark. Mark had some splaining to do, right? But here's what's crazy. We never get an account of this meeting where they come back together and they reconcile and, and it's not really detailed out for us. But, but what we have instead is this account here in Colossians 4. Over a decade later... When Mark is now a partner in the gospel and to be welcomed by the Colossian church, what happened? How was the rift healed? How was Mark's abandonment forgiven? We don't really know, but we know this. There has been reconciliation, and it could have only been effected by the gospel, by the radical love of God on display for us in Christ and in his ministry of reconciliation. And what's so radical here is Paul doesn't have to explain himself. It's almost assumed here that the reconciliation was a given, right? Paul doesn't have to say, hey, Mark's cool. He and I worked it out. He demonstrated sufficient repentance over a number of years, and here's, here's the things that he did to do it. No, he just, I'm sure that some of those things were involved, but Paul just says, Mark, among others, is a comfort to me. This kid who once deserted me, is a comfort. And that kind of reconciliation only happens by the gospel, even if it takes 
years. So there's a secret. There's a secret that undergirds this passage, and I'm going to let you in on it. What is it that makes Christian servants content with ordinary faithfulness? And what is it that calls Christians to engage in sacrificial hospitality to the extent that whatever gifts we have are seen as useful for Christ and his kingdom? And what is it that makes John Mark a comfort to a man he formerly abandoned? It's only Christ. It's only the gospel. And as ordinary as the ending to the book of Colossians is, it's actually kind of perfect. It kind of reinforces the opening of the book that we talked about all those months ago. Because who are these obscure people? Honestly, mostly lost in the annals of history. But they are recorded here because they are servants of the one who is the firstborn of all creation. The one who created and rules all kingdoms and thrones and dominions and rulers. The one who is before all of history and who holds all of history together. The one who's the firstborn from the dead that in everything his name might be preeminent. And in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And the one who has canceled our record of debt. All of our abandoning and all of our self-sufficiency and all of our old world ways through his own death on the cross where he disarmed all the rulers and authorities through his death and resurrection which raises us up to new life with him. Doesn't this obscure and ordinary ending to the book only highlight all the more the glory and the fame and the preeminence of Christ our Lord and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for you have exalted Christ, you have raised him to the highest place, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, every tongue would confess that he is Lord to your glory alone. So we pray, O Lord, that you would give us ordinary faithfulness in our callings, that you would give us sacrificial hospitality to give of the good things that you have given to us to make room for the stranger, for the outsider, to make room for the advance of your kingdom. We pray that you would make us a people who are radically reconciled to one another because of our radical reconciliation to you by the gospel. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.